We are in the second week. Sheila, yeah, you can come up. We're in the second week of this story series that we do every year after Easter. And usually I don't tell you why we chose a particular story. But in Sheila's case, I wanted to tell you why we chose this story, why we chose for her to come and share her story. And the reason ties to what we taught around here at Orchard Hill Church before Easter. For four weeks, we taught on the book of Galatians. And if you remember the book of Galatians, Galatians was Paul, who tried to find God by following rules, all of a sudden writes to the church and he goes, Hey, following rules is not the way to God. You have to love God. You've got to love Christ in faith. That's the way to God. And so we took uh, four weeks saying, Hey, some of you are following the rules of God, but you don't know Christ. Sheila could be the poster person for trying to follow rules. In Christ, trying to follow rules. And so her story highlights that. So the reason, I mean, lots of reasons. It's a great story. Uh, You and Gary are great help to us around here. But the reason I really wanted this was Galatians. So uh, I'm anxious to hear it again. Okay. Good morning. I was born October 2nd, 1960 in Atlanta, Georgia, to Robert and Ruth Marie Brush, the fifth of six children. My father was a pastor, and I was blessed to grow up in a loving Christian home. Since the time I can remember I've always known and loved Jesus, I can't remember a time when I did not trust him for my salvation. To understand my story, I need to share some of my family history. Both of my parents were born and reared in the Christ, that's apostrophe S, sanctified, holy church. Now you may know that sanctified really means the same thing as holy. So the name Christ, sanctified, holy church. You get the idea. Holiness was the main thing. This church was known for its highly controversial beliefs, some cult-like and even illegal practices. At the age of 14, my dad was put on a train by his mother to go live with his older brother and his wife. His brother built houses and was a pastor of a Christ-sanctified church in Norfolk, Virginia. His mother was concerned because he started hanging out with the wrong crowd. He was learning how to lie, steal, and smoke, and just a lot of shenanigans, as she put it. So shortly after arriving in Norfolk, my dad tells the story of how one evening in church, he was suddenly overcome with the guilt and shame for his sins, and the Holy Spirit was prompting him to give his life to God. So that night, he went to the altar and confessed his sins to God and asked for forgiveness. And the joy and peace that came over him was something he'd never experienced. The next day, he memorized all four verses of the great hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. He sang this hymn over and over as he worked for his brother building houses. We often sang that hymn growing up as a family, and our family today continues singing this great hymn. My dad became a diligent student of the Bible and soon became the youth leader of the church. In studying the Bible, he began to question some of the beliefs that the Christ-sanctified church was teaching. The church didn't believe in baptism, in the resurrection of the dead, and it didn't believe in the second coming of Christ. And from what he had read in the Bible, these were important beliefs of the New Testament Christians, and it really bothered him. During this time... He also became very interested in a beautiful young lady in the church, and he finally got the courage to ask her on a date, and she said yes. And a few months later, in December of 1950, they were married. My dad was 20, and my mother was 18. My dad continued wrestling with what he was learning by studying the Bible. The situation became even more difficult because he was being asked now to be the lead pastor in a church that he wasn't very sure about. 
It soon became clear to him that he had to make the difficult decision to stay in the Christ-sanctified Holy Church and teach what he knew to be wrong or leave, and leaving would be extremely difficult. They had two children now, a 13-month-old and a newborn. The church was literally family. Everyone was related. You didn't marry outside the church. To leave the church was to leave the family. And what's more, from the church's perspective, to leave this church also meant you were no longer a Christian and you would miss out on this sure path to heaven. But my dad was resolved. Staying in that church would actually mean disgracing Jesus' name rather than lifting it up. Together, my parents made the very difficult decision to leave the church, all they had ever known, in order to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Mom would often tell us how her own mother cried and begged her not to leave, telling her that she would rather see her daughter in a casket than to see her leave the church. And so at the young age of 25 and 23, my parents learned what it meant to forsake all and follow Christ. My parents then became members of the Wesleyan Church, and my dad began to preach and build houses as the last four of the six children were added to the family. I have great memories of our time in Georgia and Alabama. At three years of age, I remember all eight of us piling into our Rambler station wagon and heading off to wherever Dad was preaching that Sunday. With my parents being taught not to believe in baptism, it was a very meaningful time one Sunday when we were all baptized as a family. Though Alabama was filled with memorable experiences of the joys of childhood, It was there that one of the darkest and most traumatic events in my life took place. I was in the first grade. One of my friends was the high school principal's daughter. The high school had just purchased a trampoline, and my friend and her sister invited my sister and me to jump on the trampoline in the high school gym. While jumping on the trampoline, the school custodian started following me around and trying to catch me, and that bothered me, and I was very uncomfortable. So I got off the trampoline and went into the hallway where there was a Coke machine. And I looked, and there was chocolate Coke. It was really Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink, but in the South, everything's Coke. There's Dr. Pepper Coke. There's Orange Coke. Even Pepsi is Coke. So everything was Coke. So chocolate Coke was there, but it was five cents, and I didn't have five cents with me. The custodian had followed me there and told me he would purchase that for me if I would agree to him showing me something, and I agreed. And so he took me down the hallway to a classroom. It was a science classroom. I remember there being lots of tables and chairs. And he took me to the back of that classroom, and there he molested me. I'm not sure what all would have happened if my older sister and her friend had not suddenly appeared in the doorway of the classroom in the middle of this evil act. I know God sent them at that time to prevent even worse from happening. The custodian immediately stopped, and the next thing I remember is him handing my, to me my chocolate Coke. My young and innocent mind was very confused after that. My sister told my parents about the incident. My ter- parents and I never talked about it. It wasn't until recent years that I approached my dad and asked him why this was never talked about and why nothing had been done. I learned that he was very angry when he learned from my sister what had happened, but he didn't know what to do. He felt like that asking me about it and wanting me to talk about it would traumatize me more, and he didn't want to do that. He did contact the high school officials. They really didn't believe him, and three more girls were molested before the custodian was finally fired. In addition to coping with the trauma of this experience, growing up in my church tradition made life both inside and outside of the church enormously difficult. The outward appearance of the Christian was the central focus. 
especially the female Christians. Women were required to take extreme measures not to appear flashy, gaudy, or sexy. This meant girls were not permitted to cut their hair or wear any jewelry. Young girls were to start containing their hair as soon as it was long enough with braids or pins, and women were to wear their hair up at all times. Conservative clothing was of utmost importance. Our bodies had to be almost entirely covered. We were required to wear skirts or dresses at all times, and the hem length was to be mid-calf. This meant we had to make all of our clothes by hand because, as I'm sure several of you remember, during the 70s, mid-calf was not exactly the hem length of choice on girls' clothing. Women were not supposed to have the appearance of bare legs either. So that meant whatever of those legs was left showing had to be covered in hose with a seam up the back. Again, not cool in the 70s. And for me at the age of 11, it meant I wore knee socks. Both men and women alike had to cover their arms past their elbows at all time. And I'm still not sure what's appealing about the elbow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, For 20 years... We were constantly scrutinized, critiqued, and judged for the way we dressed. I still remember some of the hateful and condemning things that were said to our family for the way we dressed. We felt we didn't belong or fit in anywhere. At schools we attended, we were constantly mocked for not conforming to the rules and standards of culture. And at church, we were constantly being reprimanded because we were not conforming to its rules for acceptance into heaven. It's amazing that my family made it through these years without any of us walking away from faith altogether. God miraculously protected us. My teenage years were rebellious, or at least as rebellious as you can get, without being considered an outright heathen in our church tradition. I began to hang out with the wrong group of friends in our Alabama town and began to enjoy the attention of one guy in particular. He was 20, I was 15. My dad was totally against this. The guy's parents were longtime members of the church my dad pastored and were very offended that he thought that his daughter was too good for their son. My dad was spending a lot of time in prayer and one day clearly felt the Holy Spirit telling him to go read my diary. My dad had no idea I had a diary. Yeah. And he said God told him to go to my top drawer of my nightstand. And he did and found my diary and he read it. Of course, I had written in this diary about how this guy had kissed me and how wonderful it was. That may not seem much to you, but the guy was 20 and he was known for how many girls he had been with. And my dad knew this was dangerous. So my dad confronted me and banned me from being with this guy ever again. Shortly after this, one Sunday evening after church, the guy confronted my dad, letting him know that if he wasn't the pastor, he'd take my dad outside and fight him. My dad told him to please not let that stop him and to come on outside, he'd fight him. (laughs) My kids laugh about this today. They love that their grandpa did that. The guy backed down. (laughs) Soon after that, another boyfriend, and my father did not approve of him either. I started going to a girlfriend's house to meet the boyfriend, and she would give me a pair of her jeans to wear. Yes, her jeans, because I wasn't aware to, allowed to wear them. So I was feeling pretty bad going to her house wearing jeans and meeting this guy. But my dad soon caught on because he made sure he knew where his children were and what they were doing. He uh, soon sat me down and with tears in his eyes, passionately told me that he had to answer to God for his role as a father and a spiritual leader. He told me that Satan wanted nothing more but to destroy my life. 
But he, as my dad and my spiritual leader, was determined to do everything in his power to protect me, even if that meant he had to send me away to a home in Texas for juvenile delinquents. To see my dad cry while telling me he would fight for me and let me know this was, it let me know this was serious stuff and serious love. My dad's love and concern started to break through the alienation and pain I had felt that drove me to seek attention from these guys in the first place. At this time, I was taking a class by mail because there was no online classes at that time, so I could graduate my junior year of high school. My older sister was attending a Christian college in Cincinnati, Ohio, and my parents thought this would be a great place for me to go far, far away from the boys that I'd begin hanging out with. So in 1977, at the age of 16, I began my first year of college at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. Doctrinal beliefs were very important at this school, and doctrinal beliefs were very important in my family. I was taught to stand for the truth we believed, no matter what the cost. One Friday evening, I was in the school chapel rehearsing with the school trio when a page for Sheila Brush to come to the school chaplain's office blared over the entire campus. I thought someone in my family had died, so I immediately rushed to the chaplain's office. He and the dean of women were both there. The conversation began with the chaplain telling me, that he was called of God to shepherd the flock, which was the student body. He was to separate the goats from the sheep, and that he was to protect them from the wolves in sheep's clothing. And I had no clue what he was talking about. And as he continued to talk, I realized, oh, I'm the goat, and I'm the wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay, my beliefs about one chapter in the Bible conflicted with what the school taught, and I had shared that with several of my friends. The chaplain then gave me an ultimatum. I had until Monday morning to change my beliefs or I'd be asked to leave the school. I was 18, and I had to make the choice, family and my belief or the school. I left that office in total disbelief and literally sobbed the entire weekend. I called my dad sobbing. He could not believe what he was hearing. After numerous phone calls and conversations my dad had with others connected to the school, the president called me into his office, and there he questioned me about my belief. He must have thought I was pretty harmless because he sent me on my way, and the school continued as if nothing had happened, but the feeling of being singled out among my peers for my beliefs remained, and it permanently damaged my reputation and friendships at this school. I left God's Bible School, and in 1981, I attended Pensacola Christian College in Pensacola, Florida, graduating with an administrative certification. After this, I returned home to Beckley, West Virginia, where I taught school for a year and a half and served in the small church my dad was now pastoring. Saturdays consisted of two to four hours visiting the homes of children. We would give the children uh, treats and um, meet the parents and remind them we were going to be by the next day to pick them up for church. On Sunday mornings uh, at 7 a.m., the bus would leave and we would go pick up the 30 to 40 kids that we had visited the day before. We'd bring them back to the church and then I would lead the kids in worship, teach them a Bible story, have a quiz, play games, give them a snack. Then we'd pile them all back on the bus, take them all home, give them a hug, tell them we loved them and that Jesus loved them. This was exhausting but very rewarding because I was sharing the love of Jesus with those who had not experienced his love. This was the beginning of my love for children's ministry that continues today here at Orchard. After moving to West Virginia, my dad continued to grow in his understanding of the Bible and its teaching of grace. 
he eventually realized that the rules and regulations that he taught one had to live by in order to experience God's grace and mercy were wrong. And when my dad realized that he was wrong, he was willing to admit it. I remember the day that I sat at the table with my dad and asked this question. You mean a girl can cut her hair and go to heaven? And he said, yes. And he tried to explain to me how he had misinterpreted scriptures. And you would think that I would go right out and get my hair cut and enjoy this newfound freedom. But instead I was angry and I went to my room and I cried and I was like, you mean I went through all of this for nothing? Absolutely nothing? That was very difficult for me to get my mind around. And it took me a while to be okay with not knowing whether or not someone was going to heaven by how they dressed. Eventually this change in my dad's faith led to him being ignored by the churches that he had given his entire life to. In 1984, I attended a church youth camp in Fulton, Missouri, and met Gary, who helped organize and run the church camp. Gary was born and raised in this church, which holds very similar beliefs to the churches I was raised in. His dad was a pastor as well. Eight months later, on April 5, 1985, we were married. Gary was 31. I was 24. My kids wanted me to show you this picture they found. They wanted to know why both of us were staring at the watch on my wrist. Again, jewelry was not allowed in the church, not even an engagement ring or wedding band, but you could wear a watch because it had the functional purpose of telling time. It was a loophole. So, yes. So all this other stuff, the necklaces, the earrings, the diamond rings, the engagement rings, that was all jewelry without a functional purpose and was considered superfluous adornment. So we got engagement watches. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We began our marriage in Overland Park, Kansas. During this time, Gary was the worship leader and choir director. I was not involved in leadership because I had begun to move away from the church rules and guidelines for women. This caused conflict in our marriage, but we had two wise pastors who counseled us, helping us understand that many of the scriptures that were used to mandate these rules and regulations were taken out of context. This was a great time of spiritual growth and understanding for both of us. Our first child was born July 8, 1986. I had early on made the decision to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. By the time my daughter, Shaylin, was four and a half, GB, Shara, and Grant had all arrived. Being a mother of four children in four and a half years was both challenging and rewarding. I strongly believe being a mother is a holy calling, even though there are many times as a mother I don't feel holy at all. Gary was in line at this time for a promotion at work. He had worked 17 years at Johnson County, Kansas Emergency Services, and it helped play a significant role in making the county's paramedic service what it was. He was passed over for this promotion. He had planned to be with Johnson County until retirement, but we now knew God had other plans. Sometimes the greatest disappointments in life may be God getting you ready for something greater, even though you're not aware of it at that time. Gary eventually received a call from a close friend who was a senior pastor in a church of Gillette, Wyoming. We had never heard of Gillette, Wyoming. We agreed to visit the church, and traveling back, Gary told me he felt that we should make this move and become involved in full-time ministry. I had made it known before I got married that I would never marry a pastor. Now my husband was saying that he felt like we should go into full-time ministry. 
There was one major obstacle preventing us from moving at this time, major health issues with our son's GB and Grant. When Grant was four days old, he was admitted to the hospital with a fever of 102. A day or two later, GB was diagnosed with osteomyelitis, which was a bone infection in his ankle. The x-ray showed that the infection had destroyed one half of his growth plate and part of the tibia. He was admitted to Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri for immediate surgery. They weren't even allowed to leave the hospital. Gary called me at the other hospital to give me the report. The next morning, Grant's fever was gone, and he was dismissed from the hospital. I took my five-day-old baby to Gary's aunt and uncle on my way to the hospital for GB's surgery. The surgery went well, and two weeks later, GB was sent home with a pick line in where he had to have IV antibiotics for months. The doctors told us his leg would not grow normally. We needed to start thinking about new surgical procedures to lengthen or shorten legs. And as I said, Grant's fever went away, and he seemed to be okay. However, at three months, we started noticing his motor skills were not developing as they should. Another trip to Children's Mercy Hospital revealed that he had CMV, or cytomegalovirus. This is a common cold virus that is rarely passed from the mother to the child while she is pregnant. I passed this on to Grant in my third trimester. The neonatologist told us that with Grant's symptoms that he was showing at three months, he would probably not walk, his hearing and eyesight would be greatly impaired, and he would appear to be mentally handicapped and most likely had a form of cerebral palsy. We were devastated. Shortly after this, a visiting pastor asked to pray over our two sons, and after he prayed, he looked at me and said, Mom, your boys will be okay. They will not be healed immediately, but they will experience a gradual healing. And we saw just that. The next year was packed with doctor's visits and physical therapy for both Grant and GB. GB had follow-up appointments for six, every six months for the next seven years, and we gradually saw the growth plate restored with each x-ray that left the doctors with no explanation. When GB was 10, the doctor said the growth plate was normal and he, need, he needed no more follow-up care. This was an amazing answer to prayer. And by the time Grant was two, he was right on schedule in his developmental milestones with one exception. He was completely deaf in his right ear. His deafness is the only remaining deficit that Grant has from the dismal prognosis we had received two years earlier. On our last visit to the, neo to the neonatologist, he said that he had seen many, many CMV cases similar to Grant's, but had never seen any of them make the progress that Grant made. Here is Grant's three months picture with GB at the time of diagnosis. And 18 years later, this is a testimony to the healing power of God. In the summer of 1992, we moved to Gillette, Wyoming, which was a culture shock. Two months after moving there, I became pregnant with Graham, and he arrived in June of 1993. And those of you who know Graham would agree that he must have some of that Wild West blood in him. <laughs> Our six years in Gillette were some of the most trying times for me as a mother, a wife, a pastor's wife, and as a Christian. Every Sunday, Gary was out the door early to prepare for three services that morning. I would get all five kids up, get them dressed, and take them to church alone. And some Sundays, all five kids would be crying, and I would just join them, just sit down and cry right along with them. <laughs> I also homeschooled the kids. I struggled with the stress of everyday family life. It seemed like I was surviving from day to day because... That's what it was. And I didn't think that was good enough. And now I look back and I realize that's okay. That's all God asks of me or of you. To live from day to day 
and not worry about tomorrow. I have no regrets from those hectic and trying times raising and homeschooling my children, but however, it may explain my addiction to coffee. In 1997, the senior pastor in Gillette left to be the district superintendent, and a new senior pastor came to the church. He did not connect with the congregation well, and we sensed that something was just not quite right. He was unhappy with the way Gary did connect with the congregation, and he asked Gary to leave. Soon after this, the pastor was forced to leave the church and is currently serving time in prison for the sexual abuse of children. In July of 1998, we moved to Waterloo, Iowa, and Gary became the director of worship and special events at Cedar Valley Community Church. It was a wonderful experience that came to a disappointing end in 2003 when turmoil developed, which resulted in the senior pastor resigning. Following his departure, a new pastor arrived and asked Gary to stay on staff. There were things that were of concern to us during this time, and eight months later, Gary felt clearly that he should resign, which he did. We felt strongly that a move would be too much for the children, and we stayed in Cedar Falls. Another season of heartache ensued, worsened with the sudden death of Gary's mother due to complications from double knee replacement surgery. It was a difficult time for everyone, but especially for our children. They had known nothing else but their dad leading in full-time ministry. Their lives no longer revolved around the life of the church, and for the first time in any of our lives, we didn't have a church that we belonged to. We started noticing a profound effect on Graham, who was 10 at the time. He started falling behind in school, acting out at school, getting in trouble, showing symptoms of depression and separation anxiety. He would become hysterical if he could not be with his dad or me at all times. It came to a head one evening when he came to me crying uncontrollably and showed me his wrist scratched and bleeding from his attempt at ending his life by cutting his wrist with his pocket knife. I'll never forget those heart-wrenching sobs coming from a 10-year-old boy that I no longer recognized. I need help, Mom. I don't want to live anymore. This began an unfamiliar journey for our family that we continue to this day. And at times, it's been three steps forward and two steps backward. We have all come so far and learned so much, but especially Graham. God has worked in powerful ways time and time again, helping him to look past the present difficulties to see Jesus and all he has for him. Our most recent struggle came on June 3, 2011, when my mother passed away from a stroke. She was 79. I miss her more than I ever thought I would. While we were in ICU, waiting for her to experience heaven, the entire family stood around her hospital bed and sang the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And the third verse, I'll love thee in life, I'll love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. This verse took on a whole new meaning for me. And at the funeral, the entire family once again gathered around, this time her casket, and sang that hymn. And when I started singing that fourth verse, In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I was overcome with emotions of thankfulness and praise and worship because I knew without a doubt my mother was experiencing the mansions of glory and endless delight that we were singing about that day. Hallelujah. By God's grace, 
Despite the difficulties, the heartaches we experienced in the church, all five of our children continue faithfully serving God and to be an active part of the church. Gary eventually found a job working for a medical software company based out of Seattle, Washington. And I am blessed to work with the children here at Orchard Hill. My story has hurt and pain, but also one of God's abiding and faithful presence. As the daughter of a pastor, I was not immune from the troubles of life. In some ways, they were worse. I witnessed my parents' estrangement from their families, suffered the trauma of sexual assault, faced the humiliation and psychological turmoil of legalism. I was hurt by people who were supposed to be following Jesus. There was always opportunities to pull away or blame God for what happened, and I was certainly tempted to do so. But looking back over the course of my life, it is evident that Jesus was present in every circumstance. Jesus was present, guiding my dad and mom out of a dangerous church situation. Jesus was present in my sister and her friend who suddenly came into the school and prevented the assault from going any further. Jesus was present in a dad who saved a troubled daughter who was seeking validation in guise. He was present again in the love of that dad who was willing to search the scriptures time and time again and admit when he was was mistaken, freeing me from the bondage of legalism and teaching me the beauty of grace. Jesus was present when I met Gary, giving me a faithful friend and husband who walked with me through the difficulty of troubles that had passed and of those that would come, through the illness and challenges our children encountered, through the church conflicts and the death of both of our mothers. Jesus was and is always present. Our family has memorized a verse that has been significant for us in many ways. It serves as a wonderful reminder in this life. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When we are afflicted, we have a choice. Jesus is present. He's always with us. We will always be tempted to look away, to focus on the pain, the heartache, the brokenness, and the injustice. But this beautiful verse reminds us that we can always look to him, the true, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy Lord that he is. Amen. Amazing story, and I don't know where the story touches you. Uh, one place it touches my heart so deeply is that uh, we have about 45 staff, and a lot of our staff are raising kids. Mm-hmm. We have about 100 kids from zero through high school who would say, we're kids, we're kids of staff in this church. And my heart has just always been with those kids, because yes. it's hard to be the kid of a church staff person. It's just hard. Yes. Well, what I love is that uh, you and Gary, uh, coming through this whole, your five kids still love the church. Yes. And still love Jesus. And are still serving there. Amen. Across the country. And, by the grace I mean, of God, yes. By the grace of God. It's God's story. Yes. Um, and you and Gary sitting here, I mean, you know, church after church after church, uh, has somehow, you know, brought pain into your life. 
and legalism, mm-hmm. and you're still following Christ with that. So if college students or young adults or whoever's here has been hurt by the church, and many people have, this is just a testimony about that. Yeah. You can get past that in Christ yes. and uh, do that. Because you keep your eyes on him. You keep your eyes on him. That's yep. right. Yep, yep. So um, I'm going to say a prayer for you and your family and for anyone in the room who was touched, and then we'll worship a little more. Okay. Okay? Good. Dear God, join me in prayer. Dear God, thank you for this story. You know, the stories in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, are simply about human people who encountered you. And so here's another story of a human whose life has been uh, directed and drawn and guided by you. And so, Father, we uh, thank you for stories like this. We thank you that we can learn from stories like this. We thank you that you are the God of this story. And it's not so much about Sheila and Gary and the kids. It's more about you. And so thank you for the way Sheila could tell it. Uh, protect their family. Their kids are all over the country, all over the world right now. And we just pray, be very near them today. And as they pull this up and listen to it uh, online, I'm sure, uh, Father, bring comfort and peace to her kids. And uh, then for anyone in the room who was touched by some piece of your work in this story, we pray that you would uh, use that in our lives so we would be stronger followers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.